Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Global Conservation Corps is a nonprofit organization with a mission of bridging the gap between communities and wildlife. We believe that in order to have a world with wildlife and healthy ecosystems, we must facilitate a mutually beneficial relationship between wildlife and the people who live alongside it. We do this by working with youth in the areas outside Kruger National Park in South Africa to promote conservation education and jobs within the wildlife economy, such as park rangers and guides. We're driven by the belief that if tomorrow's leaders know and appreciate the value of nature, wildlife stands a chance to grow and flourish. Voices of Nature is a podcast by Global Conservation Corps dedicated to sharing the voices of young, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. By creating this podcast, Global Conservation Corps not only wants to showcase the amazing work of people who have dedicated their lives to living and working in some of the most challenging places in the world, but also exploring solutions that all of us can be part of in an effort to protect wildlife and the ecosystems that all of us depend on for healthy, prosperous lives. Our guest today is Kate Finelli, a conservationist, artist, and program director for Global Conservation Corps. Welcome to the Voices of Nature podcast, Kate. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm super excited. Okay, you're, to say the least, your background is, is both diverse and quite fascinating. Your academic studies and your work have taken you from Namibia to the UK to the Himalayas to Africa. Tell us a little bit about what you do and what could be described as the connective tissue that brings together all the various projects that you've worked on around the world. <laughs> I think... When you say connective tissue, my mind goes directly to cats, specifically big cats. I think even back when I was five years old, I was just obsessed with cheetahs. And I have drawings from when I was was in kindergarten and I drew this terrible cheetah that only had two legs. And <laughs> I think I was I was trying <laughs> really hard there to make it look like it was running. And that's it's kind of a disastrous drawing, but it's definitely it speaks to the fact that that I've always really been drawn to big cats and from that love of cheetahs, I, I kind of crafted my whole undergraduate studies around potentially getting an internship in Namibia with the Cheetah Conservation Fund. I actually changed my major so that I could get this internship. And when that played out and I actually got to go to Namibia and work with one of my heroes, Lori Marker, and, and work alongside these animals that I've idolized since I was five, it was an incredible experience. And I think one that really opened my eyes to the dimensions of big cat conservation, because a lot of the issues that cats are facing around the world are very similar, and a lot of them are very human-related. So I think between all of the projects and work that I've done, that that's kind of been the underlying connective tissue, so to speak. And even my master's studies in the Himalayas with snow leopards, and back to Africa, I did a Namibian leopard census with a conservation consulting group. And now I work for GCC. So that's kind of been my underlying motivation for everything. Every decision I've made has involved revolved around cats. Well, and it all comes down to the to cheetahs in a way. And I just, I have to ask, like, what was it about the cheetah when you were five that, that so captivated your interest? <laughs> oh my gosh, this is going to make me sound like a total nerd, which I was. But <laughs> as a kid, I got picked on a lot. I had some issues with bullies and sat by the bus driver at the front of the bus, if that gives you an image of <laughs> the kind of kid I was. 
And I think what I loved the most about cheetahs, because I just learned everything that I could about them, was that they're kind of the underdogs of the the carnivores of Africa. And they're amazing hunters. They make all these kills. They have one of the highest success rates with killing, but most of their kills end up getting taken away from them by lions, hyenas, leopards, even jackals can actually push a cheetah off a kill. And I think I just identified with that as a kid because they're still so cool, right? Like yeah, they're, they're besides all of this, mm-hmm. like, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe the resilience of, of cheetahs, despite all of the, the bullies that they deal with <laughs> really resonated with me as a little kid. That's uh yeah, that's, that's quite powerful. And I think that's, in a way, is something that a lot of us can identify with. Um, but Kate, you're, you're not just a, a conservationist, right? You're, you're also a photographer, you're an artist, and you use your, frankly, your artistic skills to bring to life the love that you have for cats. And tell us a bit more about kind of the intersection between your, your artistic interests and talents and your love and commitment for conservation of big cats. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Actually, that's kind of my side hobby and passion. And that's actually what I started off studying during my undergraduate degree. So I went to school, I was kind of an artsy teenager after all that bullying. <laughs> and I went went to to University of Oregon with the intention of, of studying art. And I started off studying art. And I remember being really frustrated freshman year when we had to paint bowls of fruit and people and do all that. I just wanted to paint animals. And so I I think that's kind of when it clicked and realized that maybe I should pursue a different career path and and keep the art as, as a side thing and, and something that I really enjoy. And it's really, really easy to be inspired by big cats. And I think there's just something really graceful and artistic in the way that they are and the way that they exist. And it's it's really easy to be inspired to create that on a canvas or on a piece of paper. And and I think like <laughs> it's kind of funny because I've I've tried especially to paint and draw other animals and they never turn out the way I want them to. But with big cats, I think I've just spent so much time watching them and even like on National Geographic and I, I just have always watched the way they move and the way that they exist. And I think it's something that comes out in my art and through photography. And so I was lucky enough to get into the photography side of things while working with the Cheetah Conservation Fund. And it's it's just hard not to take a good photo of a cheetah. Yeah. And so I think yep. that, that really started off my interest in photographing big cats. And I've been lucky enough to travel around and be able to do that as well. So I, I feel really thankful and grateful for that privilege. And you you showcase a lot of your work on your website, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So <laughs> I actually, my sister is a, a web designer. So I had her do that for me because it's like, I need somewhere to put these photos. But I've managed now, I, I think my goal, my goal before I turned 30, which I have long passed, thank you, COVID. <laughs> but I was, I was trying to get a picture of every one of the big cats. And I went and did my research in snow leopard country in the Himalayas, never saw a snow leopard. So that was my first <laughs> major failure. And then I've also, ironically, the cat that I live around the most in the United States is the mountain lion or the puma, and still never seen one of those. And I always read in the news that they are close by and I go to those places with my camera and never see them. So those are my two outstanding big cats. But besides that, I've had 
some really good luck. And I really like to be able to showcase that somewhere. So I actually put them all on a website along with my art. And I base a lot of my art off of these photos I've been lucky enough to take of these cats. And it's just been a really nice reciprocal relationship there. So let's now maybe talk about my, my big cat, the Jaguar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you and I actually have a, a bit of a shared connection in that we've both separately traveled to the Pantanal region in Northwest Brazil um, as part of the amazing work of Panthera, which is a big cat uh, conservation organization founded by Tom Kaplan. And, you know, Kate, I couldn't help but reminiscing when you were talking about why you love the cheetah so much. You know, the conversations that I had with Alan Rabinowitz of Panthera, you know, when he was asked, why does he love the jaguar so much? He talked about how he was bullied in school because he had a stutter. And the only, the only time he felt comfortable enough to talk and to really create a connection was when he would lock himself in his closet with his stuffed animals. And that, that's when he could finally communicate the way he wanted to communicate. And then his parents would take him to the zoo and he just developed this connection with the jaguar. And he said that it was at that moment that he promised that if he ever got a voice, he would use that voice to, to save the jaguar. And, and I think the work that he and Tom Kaplan and so many others have done with Panthera in the, in the Pantanal is just a testament to, you know, how he's actually used his voice. You know, fortunately, Alan passed away a couple of years ago, but how he so effectively used his voice to protect the jaguars and the, you know, the habitat that they live in. You know, you, you know much more about jaguars than I do. I'm much more of a, an admirer. You're much more of the scientist. Can you talk a little bit about what makes the jaguars such a iconic species and, and why the, the Pantanal is so important for the just the overall health of the, the jaguar species. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. First of all, though, I want to just say to your story about Alan, I think that's that's a story that so many of us, especially working in conservation, can identify with and connect with. And I I think I've, I've like read all his books. His life was incredible and amazing and, and what he overcame and the ways he was able to help big cats across the world is just it's a huge inspiration. And I'm kind of curious too, Bob, what... I, I'm sure you have a story about like when you first connected with jaguars, and I I feel like I I want to know where <laughs> where your connection is with them. So my connection actually came um, to that trip to the Pantanal uh, with with Panthera and with Alan, and, and the the genesis for that trip was um, sixty minutes. CBS sixty minutes had heard about yeah. the work. <laughs> Of Alan of Panthera and of Tom in the Pantanal, um, you know, buying up um, land in the Pantanal to keep the the so-called jaguar corridor contiguous, so that the jaguars could continue to to use that corridor to to migrate and travel, hunt, and so on. And and you know, most of my life, my animal had always been the lion. And you know, I had opportunity to live and work in Africa for a while. And you know, some of my fondest memories were on safari in Kenya um, and, and being able to very, very up close see the, just the beauty of the, of the lions. But there was something about that trip to um, the Pantanal where just the, um, the beauty of the jaguars came, just came to the front. And I think the most, the most special thing about the jaguar is that it, it only allows you to see it when it wants to be seen, whereas the lion yeah. doesn't really care. You know, is, you know, from my experience in Africa, they're, they're, you know, they, they're, they don't mind you being in their world. 
you're only allowed into the world of a Jaguar if a Jaguar allows you into its world. And yeah, just the way they move to your point, the beauty with how they move and just their, their proportions are just so elegant. And so when you see one, it's just, you just, you just have this moment where it, it just takes your breath away and you <laughs> realize how special that moment really is, how fleeting that moment is and how lucky at least I was to have a few moments like that. And one of my most treasured possessions is this beautiful, very large uh, photograph that um, Steve Winter of National Geographic and Panthera took mm -hmm. of, of a jaguar in the Pantanal that um, Panthera had, had framed for me. And it is, to say the least, in a very, very prominent place in my house. And every time I <laughs> see that beautiful picture, I just have this. It just it warms my heart, I guess. I totally know what you mean. And I, I have a, I have a giant picture actually of my favorite cheetah above my fireplace. And it, it is, it's actually huge. It takes up the whole wall yep. down to the Mine mantle. takes up a wall basically. <laughs> and I wouldn't have it any other way. These cats definitely, this is the closest I can get right now with the whole no, no traveling going on. So I'm sure you feel the same, but I, I definitely, when listening to you talk about the Jaguars and just the, the way they move and the way they are, and the first time you see them, it takes your breath away. I wanted to tell the story of, so when I first saw a Jaguar in the wild, it was such a cool experience. So we went and stay, we're staying at Panthers Ranch with, I went with a nonprofit group called Climb for Conservation, uh, which my friend April works for. And so we went down and stayed at Panthers Ranch and Basically, the whole reason I went is that I really wanted to see jaguars. And I also wanted to see the work that Panthera is doing on the ground because there's there's definitely a lot of underlying similarities in big cat conservation, but it's so nuanced depending on where you are. And it's just so interesting to me to see the differences in approaches and ingenuity. And there's just a lot going on in that space. So I was really excited to kind of dig my feet into that, so to speak. Yeah, I don't know if that's the term, but <laughs> we went out got on the boat, really exciting. And with my experience looking for big cats, I worked on a leopard census for three months before this. And I, I did my, my master's thesis on snow leopard conservation. And I, <laughs> during both those times, I didn't see any of these leopards. And so my experience with, with looking for big cats is like, if you see one, you're incredibly lucky. And yep. if you don't, that's you still are. okay. Yep. Yeah. And so we take this first boat ride out and I'm not really expecting to see anything, but I have my camera there and and we come around the corner and there's like five boats piled up all facing the same direction. And so immediately, wherever you are, like if there's cars or boats piled up, there's something interesting going on. So we kind of get into the, the crowd of boats and all of a sudden a Jaguar just swims past the boat, probably like 12 feet away in the water right next to us. And <laughs> I just remember being so shocked. I was not expecting that at all. And then we see what this jaguar is looking at. And there's a little group of capybara on the, the opposite bank of the river. And the jaguar is swimming straight towards them. And so not only were we in the water with a jaguar, we were watching one hunt. And it was yep. just like, <laughs> to see that behavior in the wild is just probably the coolest thing I could ever, ever imagine. And so, of course you know, cats always try and fail. Like the hunt failed. He left after them. It was this amazing visual display. And then he his kind of seemed kind of grumpy after that and stalked <laughs> into the bushes. And then he actually caught a, a little monkey 
right after that, this poor monkey went down to the water to drink and just never came back. And so it was the whole experience was just mind blowing for someone that has worked in Africa for so long and has chased around these elusive big cats and has never seen a cheetah hunt, like for working with cheetah conservation for three years, it was first trip out seeing a jaguar hunt and swim past the boat. It was, it just blew my mind. And then every day after that, we went out on the boat, we saw a jaguar. And so I think the, the Pantanal is just probably one of the coolest places in the entire world. And just some facts about this place. Not only do you see these jaguars that are just living their lives, it's also the world's largest freshwater wetland. And to give you some perspective of how large it is, it's 20 times the size of the Everglades in Florida. And it's also one of the world's most productive habitats and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it's just a super special place. And even if you go and you don't see jaguars, there's all these other species there that are just incredible. And there's actually, for all those bird nerds out there, and I'm definitely in that category as well, there's over 650 different types of bird species here, which if you know, in the birding world is like, oh, that's so, it's just amazing. And so I had my bird book with me the whole time on the boat and was just ticking off species. <laughs> and I, yeah. I still have it on my shelf. And sometimes I go look at it and just, you know, internally. When, yeah, when, when I was at, in the Pantanal, there were far more people on the river, the Pantanal River, looking for birds <laughs> than looking for jaguars. Um, there was, it was really a congregation of the serious birders far more than the serious big cat enthusiasts. And I never, frankly, I never appreciated that until I was, I was down Yeah, there. It's so funny to see, uh, there was a few times where the boats were facing the jaguars and they're laying there on the bank and they're lounging and they're just looking stunning. And people on the boat are looking in the totally opposite yeah, direction with their binoculars. <laughs> they're always looking up. <laughs> it's great because even if you're, I found Working in Africa, if you're going birding, you tend to find leopards, and that's actually a great way to organically stumble across the big cats, is if you just go out to see birds, because you will always see birds, and then you're never disappointed. That's it's true. great. That is true. <laughs> you know, one of, my, one of my other enduring memories of the Pantanaldo is the, in particular in the mornings, uh, the pervasive smell of smoke. And how it just, you know, mm-hmm. is always in your clothes. And, you know, I was, it was about 10 years ago when I was in the Pantanal. And, and unfortunately, what I witnessed was a very, very small precursor to the devastation that the Pantanal has endured, particularly over the last number of months. Can you, can you talk a bit about the, the terrible forest fires the region has experienced, um, what, basically in the last 12 months, 10 months? Yeah, definitely. It's it's honestly been heartbreaking. And this year has just been a disaster in pretty much every single way. <laughs> the the Pantanal fires were definitely something that that really cut me to the core. And I think they weren't getting nearly the amount of media attention that they should have. Um, so there's always seasonal fires in the Pantanal. And, and this is something that a lot of the plant species actually depend on. And much like in places in California and, and other places across the world, a lot of species depend on these seasonal fires. But because of climate change and deforestation, a lot of these fires are getting way worse than the ecosystem can handle. And so 2020's fires in the Pantanal were actually four times larger than they have been previously. And 
this was because of climate change and extreme drought. And the deforestation that was happening in central and southeastern Brazil was impacting the the flying rivers phenomenon. I don't know if you, have you heard of that, Bob? No, I haven't. Can you talk a yeah, bit about that? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and the Amazon contributes to this as well quite a bit. And it is something that affects us globally. But it's a crucial process in which a stream of moisture arising from the forest travels to other areas. And the Pantanal is one of those areas. And the water-filled air becomes colder as it travels to these areas and turns into rain. And so this helps balance out any sort of drought or anything like that. And as you know, the Pantanal is a wetland, so it really depends on this rain to to fill up and have that influx of animals that comes in every year. And the, the species that are drawn to this rain in this wetland are part of what makes the Pantanal so special. But because of this deforestation, the flying rivers have been really impacted and the drought lasted much longer and was much worse than it has been in previous years, hence the fires that consumed over 28% of the Pantanal. So it was really brutal for the wildlife and for the indigenous populations that are living there that depend on that land. And it had a huge effect locally in the area, but this is also a global issue and this affects everyone because the wetlands like the Pantanal are one of Earth's most effective carbon sinks. And so they play a huge role in the global carbon cycle. Um, And this, as most people know, plays a huge role in mitigating climate change. And so when these carbon-rich ecosystems burn, a huge amount of heat-trapping gases are released back into the atmosphere, and this contributes to the greenhouse effect, and so on and so on and so on. So it was really unfortunate to watch from a distance these fires happening and just created this kind of existential dread and me that this this isn't the first year and this isn't a once-off and this will probably continue to happen. And the ability of the Pantanal as an ecosystem to bounce back from this is going to be less and less. And so it's kind of it's kind of a cyclical relationship, right? Like the fires are are worsened by climate change and they're essentially making the climate change problem worse. So it's a it's a bad cycle. And I think we really need to think very seriously about our resource use and how deforestation contributes to this. And this ecosystem is is hanging in an incredible balance within the whole continent and the whole world. And, you know, there's there's a lot to be thought about there and a lot of it has to come from leadership. But yeah, it's, it, that was this, the fires in the Pantanal were a big stressor for me this year, as I'm sure they were for you. It was heartbreaking to witness it from afar and know that a place that is just so special and as you said is is so important to just our overall health um you know both near and far from the pantanal it was sick to its very very core and it just that was um like you said it was it was heartbreaking it was heartbreaking to witness and you also you realize that there is such a you know a human element to this as well i mean the you know, there are, there are the families that do live in the Pantanal. There are few and far between. When you're at Tom Camplin's ranches in the Pantanal, you truly are at the end of the road, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's no one around you for hours. And the, and the people that live in those ranches depend greatly on those ecosystems for nearly everything to sustain their lives. And knowing that we're not just talking about a bunch of trees and plants burning, we are talking about the the existential threat to the lives of real people on the ground was also heartbreaking. And then frankly, there was, you know, back to the theme of the podcast, there was, 
there wasn't really anyone giving a voice to this. Yeah, exactly. And the my friend I mentioned earlier, April with Climb for Conservation, actually started a Pantanal Relief Fund, and they raised over thirty thousand dollars to help just in the relief work that was happening on the ground. So, you know, the California wildfires had huge amounts of of firefighters coming in, resources coming in to to help battle what was happening there, which was horrible to watch because that's actually where I grew up, and so a lot of places that I love burned beyond repair. And that, that was, it was really hard, but I had the knowledge that there were good people out there fighting this and working against this. But with the Pantanal fires, they barely got any media attention. And they also barely got any attention in terms of just resources and skilled people working in that space. And so through the Pantanal Relief Fund, they were actually able to bring in more firefighters, more resources. Um, and like you said, it's just such a remote area that it's really hard to fight a fire like that. And especially when, from what I was hearing, the government wasn't investing very much time or energy into fighting these fires. And, you know, my my friend April went down there and was, was posting pictures of tapirs that had been burned, jaguars that had walked through embers and, and burned the paw pads of their feet down to the bone. And Luckily, there was people out there that were braving the smoke and braving the fire to rescue these animals and to deliver resources to the people that had lost everything. And uh, yeah, thanks to that, we were able to direct some funds down there and and have a place to donate and kind of direct that sadness that (laughs) I know I was feeling about all of this. And so I'm really grateful for that. But it just shows like this needs to be a higher priority for everyone, including our leadership. And it was clearly not. And it was really kind of a shame. Well, and another another topic that you and I have both done some work on that ties into this is the, you know, the the fact that the the COVID nineteen pandemic and frankly the pandemics before it have mm-hmm. have all have a common theme in that they're a result of these these incredibly important ecosystems being weakened, being destroyed, being you know taken up bit by bit. Um, and, and the reason that is so consequential is because these ecosystems are often the barrier between humans and the animals that of all kinds that, you know, that carry these diseases that then infect us and, and lead to the, these terrible pandemics. And can you just talk a little bit about why the, frankly, the health of ecosystems is directly tied to the health of human yeah, beings? Yeah, definitely. And I think this pandemic has been a huge wake up call for a lot of a lot of us. And, it, and even then, a lot of people didn't realize this directly stemmed from the degradation of our ecosystems. And this is not a once off thing. This will unfortunately keep happening. And a lot of the conservationists in my life recognized that they knew this this was coming, which is which is really scary and really sad. And I think just on a more hopeful note, I think this really brings up the one health approach. Do, do you know about the one health approach, Bob? No. Can you please tell yeah, us about that? I, it's something that I've heard thrown around a few times in my career, and it never really became super relevant for me personally until this pandemic when I, I started learning more about this. So it has it, been around for a while, but basically the, the goal of the one health approach is to achieve optimal health outcomes that recognize the interconnection between people, animals, plants, and their shared environment. And so this ties almost directly into what's happening with COVID and what will continue to happen as these ecosystems break down. 
And so essentially the breakdown of the One Health approach is that the human populations are growing and expanding into new areas. And as a result, more people are living in close contact with wild and domestic animals. And this includes livestock and pets. And I, I'm definitely one of those people that enjoys living around animals. I have a cat and a dog and I lived on a farm for a while out in Namibia and it's just great to be surrounded by animals, right? But there, and we all I recognize animals play a really important role in our lives and most people's lives across this planet, whether it's for food or livelihoods or travel or education or companionship, there's, there's a lot of roles that animals play, but close contact with animals and their environments provides a lot of opportunities for diseases to pass between animals and people. They're called zoonotic diseases. And so because the earth has experienced changes in climate and land use, such as deforestation, like I mentioned earlier, and intensive farming practices, disruptions in environmental conditions and habitats have provided new opportunities for diseases to pass to animals. And the movement of people and animals and animal products has increased from international travel and trade. So animals that were previously relegated to one space have been shipped all over the world, alive and dead. And this is a huge problem. So as a result, these diseases that were kind of isolated in animal populations have spread quickly across borders. And then as we can see with this pandemic around the globe, that spread so fast, yep. everyone was affected by this. And it's spreading again, right? It just, it keeps coming yeah, back around. It's, it's brutal. And this, the thing I like about the One Health approach is that it's involving experts in human, animal, and environmental health and all the other relevant disciplines and sectors around this. And they're working to monitor and control public health threats and learn about how diseases spread among people, animals, plants, and environment. And so it's recognizing that we shouldn't operate in isolation, right? We shouldn't operate in a silo because like I said before, everything is so connected, the environment, the ecosystem, our role in that, it all hangs in a really delicate balance. And this also kind of makes me think about, about the field of conservation, right? A lot of times it feels kind of like that's its own field, it's its own separate area, but conservation can't be successful if it operates in isolation. It has to be interdisciplinary and intersectional. And there's a lot of things that conservation can encompass as a field that we need to address in order to have successful conservation initiatives. So that's, I like, I like that part of the One Health approach in that it is bringing in experts from all fields to help solve this problem, which is, which is really cool. Yeah, to go back to our talk about the, the Pantanal and the, the, that ecosystem, what struck me when I was there is, is really how kind of self-correcting and self-regulating these are. And for example, what Panthera has done is worked with a lot of the ranchers down there to help them understand that the, you know, as the apex predators, the jaguars are actually what helps keep the ecosystems healthy. They're mm -hmm. the ones that will take down the weakest, sickest cattle, you know, the ones that may have an illness or a disease. And, and that, you know, that alone helps preserve the, the health of the ecosystem. And then ultimately, to your point, the health of, of all the humans that may come into contact with anything that comes in or out of that ecosystem. And it, it's, just, it's just such a tragedy that we don't realize that left to their own devices, these ecosystems not only keep themselves healthy, but they keep us healthy and, too. And I think like going back to a few questions ago, you asked me what really drew me to the jaguar. And I think honestly, it's their resilience. They're one of the most resilient big cats out there. And 
just seeing these images from the fires in the Pantanal and just blackened ground and muddy water. And it's, it's just been so heartbreaking. But recently an image came out. I think April actually took this picture while she was down there. But it was a jaguar with her new cub, a very little cub. And she's sitting on this blackened ground on this bank next to the river and, and grooming her cub. And it just, it was really like kind of an emotional image for me because it just shows that there's resilient animals. Like if we give them this chance and if we, we kind of take a step back, this ecosystem can still come back into balance and these animals can still be an indicator of, of a healthy ecosystem, but we have to let that happen. Yeah. Well, Kate, to your credit though, you are, you've dedicated your life to that very mission and vision. You've stated that you, the main goal of your work is to make sure that humans and wildlife can live alongside each other and, and mutually benefit. And because a world without wildlife is not one that I ever want to live in, which is this <laughs> incredibly powerful statement. And your, your work at Global Conservation Corps is the living embodiment of that statement. So can you, can you now kind of talk about the, the here and the now of the work and, and what your work at Global Conservation Corps is about and what you're trying to achieve Yeah, there? and just, just to kind of rewind a little bit, I just want to explain how I, I ended up with GCC. And, and for someone that was obsessed with the cats, right, and just wanted to work with them and follow around and take notes on their behavior and learn about what they were doing, I think a big eye-opening moment that I had working with the cheetahs was, was seeing the challenges that they face living on farmland. And so cheetahs were attempting to share space with people. And most cheetahs in Namibia do live on farmland. They're kind of pushed out of protected areas by those predators I mentioned before. And the challenges that they're facing in order to share space with people are really, really complicated. And the cheetahs aren't doing anything really wrong. They're, they're just trying to survive and live and feed their cubs. But because of the way humans operate and way human development has progressed, conservation is a human problem. And I think the solution for conserving wildlife lies with people. And that's kind of a big sweeping statement. But to hone it down with GCC's work, I think I was really drawn to GCC because it really, as an organization, focuses on that human side. And it's not just Band-Aid solutions, right? So, so GCC works in two spaces. And there's the short-term space where we're supporting anti-poaching rangers and making sure that the overexploitation and poaching of wildlife doesn't just wipe out these species before we have a chance to address some of those bigger issues. And those bigger issues link towards systemic change long-term. Like, so as an organization, we're really working in that socio-environmental space where conservation has to be about people. So looking at Kruger National Park, where we operate, the issues are really complex. There's there's a huge human population living alongside Kruger National Park. And the wildlife is facing a lot of human-centric challenges in this area. So there's habitat encroachment, but mainly it's over-exploitation. Um, over-exploitation and poaching, the issue in the outward-facing media is often really, really oversimplified. Like poachers are the bad guys. And, you know, people on the internet are often celebrating when they hear about a poacher being shot or killed or arrested. and you know, poaching is a brutal, violent act against wildlife, but to put all the blame on that person isn't exactly fair or accurate. And so if you break down the issues further, poverty and exploitation of wildlife is really heavily linked. And there's a huge disconnect between conservation and the legal wildlife economy or basically jobs that could provide income for these families 
and local level benefits. So a lot of the people that are living alongside this hugely famous national park aren't seeing any of those benefits and have no connection. They're not even able to go visit the park. And they watch people from other countries all the time going in, spending so much money, and that never makes it back into these communities that are living kind of hand to mouth. So that's a huge problem, right? Like we can't expect people who are trying to feed their families to put wildlife ahead of that when that's their their living situation. And lucky for me, I have never known what that feels like. And and I can imagine, Bob, I'm guessing you've probably never known that either. You're and very yeah, it's yes. it's just a really it's a social issue. It's it's an economic issue. It's a political issue. There's a lot of layers to this. So there's obviously a major disconnect between the communities living alongside these wildlife. And so what GCC is doing is trying to make sure that these people aren't only going to benefit from the existence of these conservation efforts, but eventually we need them to move into the decision-making roles and the leadership roles around this that they have been historically excluded from. And so obviously, you know, education, everyone totes education as the solution and, and it is, but we need to take it a step further, right? Just like providing education and letting kids go on game drives isn't, isn't going to fix this problem. And so what we're doing as an organization is really looking at the barriers to access within careers and conservation. What are these barriers and what can be our role as a nonprofit in breaking down these barriers in order for these young people to really step into roles and play out this passion that they've built through their environmental education and actually engaging with this wildlife that's so close to their homes. And so we kind of touch on all those spaces. So we're opening up access. We're trying to give access to these young people within the national park, but also we're trying to work towards long-term benefits and an eventual systemic shift in external leadership around conservation to internal leadership. The, the people that are affected by living alongside this wildlife should be making the decisions around what to do in this conservation space. And so that's kind of what we're working towards long-term at GCC. And that's what I feel really hopeful about our work because this in the conservation space, it's, it's still very wildlife focused. And I think we've taken a step back and looked at the big picture here. And now we work with people. So well, speaking of people, how can people help the people like you, uh, like the team at GCC, uh, like your friend April in the Pantanal, achieve this systemic change that, that you talk about as being so important? I mean, if you, if you don't have the opportunity to travel to Brazil or South Africa, but you still want to be part of the solution, what can you do to, to be part of the yeah, solution? Yeah, that's a great question, Bob. And I think there's, there's obviously a lot of different levels of, of how involved you want to be. But, and you know, just as someone who works for a nonprofit, your donation actually goes really far. And I'm not going to be that person that's just like, donate, donate, donate. But it, actually, I'm being that person. And so, especially for such a small grassroots organization, a small amount of money takes us a far ways. And so to start with that, that's, that's my number one piece of advice. But as an individual, there's also a lot you can do on kind of a local grassroots level. So change starts in your backyard, both literatively and figuratively. And to build a better relationship between people and wildlife, there's obviously a top-down element, right? And there's corporate and government responsibility that we have to address and we have to hold our government and corporations accountable for the damage that is happening to our natural world because there's a lot of responsibility there. 
But on a personal level, conservation corridors are a huge thing, right? So for example, in the United States, we have the monarch migration and a huge problem that they're facing as they migrate. And it's a multi-generational migration, which is so cool, right? So a monarch will leave the place it's migrating from and they'll never return there, but their offspring will. And so they're going up and down the entire Americas through this migration, but they're running out of places to stop and reproduce and eat. And there's just not enough resources. So with more human development, and this is just one example, right? Um, And there's a lot of examples of this, but with human development, we're not factoring in the needs of the wildlife that share our space. And that really needs to change. And that's something that you can change as an individual. And you can actually provide wildlife habitats in your own backyard or on your porch or wherever you have space where plants can exist. You can actually help to build these wildlife corridors for not just monarchs, but for, for all sorts of species. And there's actually a great book by Douglas Talamy that I use for a blueprint for this kind of thing. Cause it's, it's easy to ask like, okay, where do I start with this? But it's called nature's best hope. And I recommend anyone who wants to be part of this, you know, kind of individual level shift towards creating more wildlife habitat, read this book because it does, it does give you a good outline on how to do that and no matter where you are. And I really like that approach. But obviously, wildlife isn't limited to charismatic megafauna, right? There's wildlife everywhere. I have a spider in my living room that can attest to that. There's a raccoon in the gutter outside. <laughs> Sometimes I'm really excited when I see them, but they're very good at staying away from people as they should be. Um, and I think it's our job as individuals to really foster empathy for all wildlife. And the people close to you, your kids or your parents or your grandparents, see this empathy, it is contagious. So instead of maybe like smushing that spider in your living room, you can bring them outside or even if it's cold outside, just let them hang out because chances are they're probably keeping other spiders out of your living room. So think of it as like your guard spider. (laughs) But I think- That is is advice we can all live by right there. (laughs) It's a bit of weird advice that I think most of my family is really annoyed by when I say, don't kill that spider. But but it is contagious because people don't, at least when I'm around anyways, they're too nervous. <laughs> no, but you're, um, you're so right. I mean, you don't have to move heaven and earth to make a difference, right? It can be something as simple as not even, not even creating a garden in your backyard. If you don't have room or don't have the time, just, you know, get some pots, do some potted plants and and let them serve serve as a home base for some insects because those insects ladder up into the rest of yeah, the Yeah, exactly. And I think another really important thing that on an individual level, everyone can do is just to maintain a lifelong learning relationship with, with people and wildlife and that whole intersection of connectedness to nature. And I think just remembering that these issues are so complex and there's always more to learn and to have that curiosity for learning and to have an open mind and to remember that this is so far beyond one species or, or one population. This has to do with our environment, the people living in it, the animals living in it. And I think definitely just the world being where it is, I think we, this is really important to recognize. And I want to throw out a term that I think is a good place to start for people to look up and kind of dig into this and it's intersectional environmentalism. Um, so that's a really good place to start to kind of learn about how interconnected all of these things are. Well, that leads me to my final point. Um, it's a really good lead into the final question, I should say, which is 
you know, I always try to end these conversations on a positive note. And, you know, so we've, you know, in this conversation, we've talked a lot about the, you know, the ravages of the wildfires in the Pantanal, COVID-19, pandemics, so on and so forth. But yet, there's still a lot of reason to be hopeful. And so, Kate, why, in the face of all these challenges and all this uncertainty, suffering and so on, why do you still That's remain? A great hopeful? question, Bob. And, and you know, there's, there's a reason why I'm not just hiding under a blanket under my, my table at my house because there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful in this space. And some of the statistics can be really scary and can kind of be mind numbing and and want to make you shut down and ignore all these issues. But I don't think that's the approach we need to take because I feel like, especially now, almost worked in conservation for 10 years, and I've seen it change a lot over the last 10 years, but I have a really strong feeling that we're, we're at a turning point with conservation and this field is going to change drastically in order to more effectively meet the challenges that it's facing. And so I'm feeling really excited about that. Honestly, I'm excited to see where this goes and I'm excited to be a part of that change in that movement. And even more than that, I think what drew me to this field and what's kept me in this through all the ups and downs and really extreme emotions that are associated with watching our natural world kind of fall apart or the people that are in this field. And especially like the people that are involved with GCC have have had a huge influence on my level of hope around conservation, because these are honestly some of the best people (laughs) I've ever met. And just in the wider conservation space as well, anyone who has shown a level of caring for this topic gives me a huge amount of hope because I'm convinced these are the best people in the world. i like, you, you can try to change my mind, I would, but I don't no, think you I would, will. I would agree with you, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think with these compassionate and intelligent and just like energetic people working on these problems together, there's, there's, I have a, a huge amount of hope for for conservation in our natural world and the direction that this turning point is taking us. Yeah, and it's people like your friend April, who just refused to quit. It's people like, you know, I mean, how many meetings did someone like Alan Rabinowitz have with, you know, literally heads of state in countries all over the world talking about conservation? Meeting after meeting, year after year, he refused to quit. But eventually he broke through. And eventually they started taking the protection of these these iconic species uh, seriously. And we're all better for it. He's a great example of someone that just persevered and dedicated their life to this. And Speaking from experience, there are so many people like him working on these issues, and it just makes me so happy. Well, hopefully through this podcast, we can give a a voice to any number of those people. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Well, on that note, Kate, it has truly been a pleasure having this conversation with you. It's been very much a a trip down memory lane, but also just, you know, especially with your comments towards the end, just a wonderfully uplifting conversation. So. Thank you very well, much. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. This definitely made my day. I think I got to talk about everything that I love. So I really appreciate you. Know, thank you for the thoughtful questions and the great conversation. And yeah, I just like, I have a huge smile on my face. So this is a great, great way to start the day for me. Thank you. You're very welcome. Talk to you soon, Kate. Yeah, talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>